The title is Righteous Conquest and Virtuous Violence, which those might be adjectives you would never expect to be attached to those nouns in that way. These chapters narrate the end of the conquest of Joshua. We've been getting all the stories, all the miracles. This is going to give us the rest of it. And it's going to more or less summarize the rest of what he did. And then chapter 12 is going to give us what you might call the end game stats. It's going to be the box score. It's going to tell you who they beat and what cities they conquered. This is a monumental moment in the Bible. Up to this point, we've been talking about the promised land. I'm going to go to that land. You can't go into the promised land. Now you're finally going, but I can't go into the promised land. Joshua, go take that promised land. Fight for the promised land. And now they're going to finally conquer their promised land. And from now on, it's going to be the children of Israel living in the land that God promised them. As they finish this conquest. And this might seem obvious to you until you stop and think about it. The Bible only speaks about this moment positively. They conquered the promised land. Hallelujah. God is good. He keeps his promises. And we recognize that. However, most people, even Christians, have a negative view of the conquest. Ranging from, well, this is outdated theology and outdated morality, and we really can't rely on it for today, all the way to This is approval of genocide, and Christianity needs to be thrown away and never looked at again. So today, we are going to address these issues. I've been saying this since like the book of Numbers, that there would come a day when we address some of these very violent passages that the Lord says unto Moses or Joshua, and tonight is the night we're going to do that. And before we begin, last thing I'll say by means of introduction is as we go through some of this, I may say some things that unsettle you. You may, especially at the beginning, not appreciate some of the things I'm saying. I'm urging you to think about these things biblically. I have got so many scripture verses to share with you tonight. We have got to learn to think biblically, even about things that we are positive the Bible says. We must be able to submit to the correction of scripture. So if you walk out of here and you think that I'm I'm just way off. I'm way off the rails here. Don't just think that. Go to the scriptures yourself and search it out. Be a Berean. The Bible says it's a noble thing to do, to double check according to the scriptures. Not your favorite blogger, by the way. Not your favorite podcaster, according to the scriptures. I'm only going to ever try to teach you anything according to the scriptures. Let's start out. We're going to read the whole chapter of chapter 11 here. When Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard of this, heard of what? Remember when the sun stood still and they took out the five Amorite kings? When he heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, in the Arabah, south of Chinaroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrafoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. May that be said of us when we come to the end of our days. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad, and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. So we've got a little telescoping going on here. This narrative is getting shortened, even though there's a lot of years involved here. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, the giants, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anav, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Last time we saw that when Israel made peace with Gibeon after the battle of Ai, that northern coalition, or I should say the southern coalition, came up to fight against them, and they came in, Israel came in to defend Gibeon, they destroyed that army, that collection of armies. The Lord sent hailstones down from heaven. The sun stood still. Remember, they brought out all the kings and stood upon their necks and hanged them on the trees and then buried them in that cave where they'd been hiding. That established the southern border of Israel. Now, the king of Hazor gathers the rest of the people for what is often called the northern coalition to fight. But you see, it's not just the northern coalition. It's also the east and the west. So they're, they're rounding out the compass here. And verse 4 of that chapter tells us that they were like sand that is on the seashore. How many? A lot. More than you can count. It also mentions they had many horses and chariots. So it wasn't just infantry. It was heavy cavalry as well. Now, we don't think very much of horses and chariots today, but imagine that you're standing on the ground with your, your fellow soldiers and you're holding what amounts to a sophisticated stick 
And here comes two horses pulling a wooden and metal-rimmed bronze tank behind it, running full speed right at you, and they're shooting arrows at you, and they're throwing spears at you, and they're swinging swords. You're going to stand against that line? But the Lord said, Joshua, don't be afraid. They gathered in Galilee at the waters of Merom. So we have a map here. This is up in the northern part of Israel, just to the northwest of what would become called the Sea of Galilee. So before, remember, they were fighting all the way down in the south. Now they're fighting up in the north. That's where the battlefield is. And Joshua is assured by God, nobody can stand against you as long as I'm with you. And we've already seen the mistakes that they were going to make. Those mistakes have already been made, and they're not going to have another mishap in the book of Joshua. Don't worry, we'll get to Judges, and there will be plenty of mishaps for us to discuss. But the Lord says, I'm with you. And they destroyed this army. They, they sent them packing. They sent them running. And it says that they destroyed the city of Hazor. Important note here. It says none of the other hill cities that they destroyed, but Hazor they did. Many times an archaeologist take a look at the land of Israel today. They will say there is no evidence that Israel ever conquered this land. And the reason they say that is because when cities were conquered, they would be sacked and burned to the ground. If you've ever seen the movie Troy, the very end of that movie where they storm the gates and they're just ravaging and burning the city and tearing down the monuments, that's what would happen in ancient warfare. And so they say, but we're looking in the, in the lairs in these tells, we're not finding burn lairs. We're not finding evidence that the cities were sacked. Well, that is actually exactly what we should expect. Because there are only three cities that Joshua tells us that were burned when Israel invaded. And those were Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. Jericho, because it was the first one. Hazor, because it seems to, as he said, the great, the great city of this coalition. So it was a special victory for them. And also Ai, because this is where they had been defeated in their sin. So when they went back, they devoted it to destruction. And it says Joshua made war on these kings for a long time. So they win this initial battle. That breaks the back of this coalition. But then they went around city by city, taking each city in turn. And it took a long time. It's going to be about seven years total that the conquest lasts under Joshua. It says Joshua left nothing undone. There was more to do. There will be other nations that they would need to drive out. The Philistines were still there. And that's going to come up in the book of Judges. But Joshua himself had done everything he was supposed to do as the leader of Israel. The land had rest from war. They had conquered the land more or less in its entirety. They had subjugated the Gibeonites, and they were now able to live peaceably and divide up the land. Finally, we have the fulfillment of what the Lord told them in Genesis 13. This is when Lot left Abram. Remember when they were fighting, and, and this is the first division of the land, where he said, you go where you want, and I'll go where I'll want, I want. And Lot took the nice part of the land, and Abram was left with the rest of it. But when that happened, it says in Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abraham never lived to see that fulfilled. But every day as they lived that nomadic life and went from place to place, he's telling everybody he can see, one day my, my descendants are going to have this land. They end up in Egypt for centuries. Now they're finally back and the land is theirs. God keeps his promises, does he not? 
Joshua, one of only two men who had faith to go in and take the land at Kadesh Barnea, he finally gets to see the realization of his faith. And it's been a long time coming, but he was not faithless when the moment came. And also, you'll notice that these Anakim were driven out as well. Remember, the Anakim were the giants. They were the uh, later descendants, or not descendants, the later variation of what are called the Nephilim, these half-demon, half-human people that Genesis 6 talks about. And they've been wiping them all out, Sihon and Og on the other side. Now they drive all the giants into a couple cities, Ashdod, Gath, and Gaza. There's a very famous giant who comes from Gath. Do you remember his name? Goliath. And what does David do when David becomes king? He wipes out the last five remaining Anakim, one of whom was Goliath. So they were chased into the Philistine cities, which is why later on we're going to see that the Philistines have giants on their side. But the conquest is complete and the land has rest from war. Let's read chapter 12 now. And like I said, these are the, these are the end game stats. It's the box score. What, what, what happened in the game? Who won? These are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. That's, of course, eastward. From the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Arawer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinneroth eastward, and in the direction of Beth Yeshimoth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, we'd call that the Dead Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, right? He's one of those giants who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edre and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah and all Bashan to the boundary of the Gesherites and the Makathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. So that's under Moses. Here's verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And next week we will look at who got what when they divided up that land. So let's list these kings. Number nine, verse nine, I should say. The king of Jericho, one. So kind of got a tally marker going here. King of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Yarmouth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adulam, one. The king of Makedah, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Afek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Maron, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Tanakh, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Yokniam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphath Dor, one. The king of Goim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. 
Now we read that like, well, it's kind of a boring list, but imagine you're one of those soldiers after the battle's been won and they're running through the list. Every one of these is a battle story that you remember. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness. That Where did you fight? I fought there. I was there conquering the land for my children to possess. So you've got the two, Sihon and Og, whom Moses destroyed when they took possession of what is called the Transjordan, meaning across the Jordan. And that is where Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh set up shop and lived. And then you have Joshua's 31 conquests. So we have the early boundaries of Israel, which will reach their apex under King Solomon. But this is the beginning, and it's already most of it. The Lord kept his promise to the children of Israel. Now, perhaps as we have been discussing this conquest, you have felt a little uneasy about certain parts of this story, especially being a kind Christian person. We already read in chapter 11, if you look back at verse 11 and verse 14, verse 11 said, they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. That's what the conquest was. Going from house to house, kicking the doors down, setting it on fire, and killing everyone who was alive inside. Verse 14 said, And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Men, women, and children slaughtered at the hands of the children of Israel. You might think, well, when you put it like that, I don't know if I want to be so happy about it anymore. This is what is called the ban, the cherem in Hebrew. Anytime you see that phrase, they devoted them to destruction. The word in Hebrew, the verb form is haram, and it just means to devote, like to set something aside. But it's, it's obviously a metaphor for devoting, setting it aside like you'd set aside a sacrifice. God said, that's mine. You can't have it. It gets burned up on the altar. It is cherem, right? That's what he said about these other cities, that they were harem. They were under the ban of devotion to destruction. God commanded them to enforce this. And let's not try to sugarcoat it. What you have here, from the Canaanite perspective, is a foreign power invading your country, conquering it city by city, burning them to the ground, and destroying every man, woman, and child, and taking all of their stuff. And we hear that, and it makes us a little uneasy. It was one thing, we were just, it was just abstract, the cities that we conquered, and now Israel has their promised land. Yay, celebrate, hello. But now we have to realize what that actually meant, and what it meant to serve under Joshua in the promised land. This is especially difficult when we remember some other scriptures on this matter. I have found that we are much more familiar with the scriptures relating to peace than we are the ones related to war. But let me read a few of these. There are a few passages in the Bible that condemn conquerors for the way that they went about conquering other nations. Habakkuk chapter 2, I'm going to read selected verses from this passage, but Habakkuk 2 through 12, speaking of Babylon, the Lord said, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. How about Ezekiel 35? I'll read verse 6 and then 10 here. 
Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. Because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. It's a prophecy against Edom. So there you've got Babylon, you've got Edom conquering other nations and the Lord comes in and says, because you did not hate bloodshed and you were going around plundering other nations, I'm going to plunder you. That sits much better with us than what I just described. You also have famous passages that describe what heaven is going to be like, what God's kingdom will be like. Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 4 says that in that day, he will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Part of the promise of the coming kingdom is that there will be no more war, no more need for instruments of war. So we hear that and we go, oh yes, come Lord Jesus. But what about we just read in Joshua? What about the scriptures that govern our own behavior? These are the obvious ones. Proverbs chapter 1. Again, I'm reading selected verses from a few of these passages. He says to his son, If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. That's your verse on not joining gangs right there. Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21, Paul, the apostle said, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Live peaceably with all, Don't, never avenge yourselves. We're much more comfortable with verses like this, aren't we? About what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to skip some sections here. But Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Skipping to verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. All that's in the Bible too. And we like those much more. You don't see many people cross-stitching the Lord's command to devote the Canaanites to destruction on a pillow and putting it on a quilt that you're going to display in the house. How are we supposed to square these moral pronouncements with the conquest of Joshua. Well, there are several ways that people choose to resolve this conflict, and I'm not a big fan of any of these, but they range from really inappropriate to, I think, just a little misguided. The first thing is they say, this was a mistake. <laughs> Better yet, they'll say this was genocide. This is often the atheist's response to this. They look at what happened in the, the land of Israel, and they say the conquest was unjustifiable genocide. You have one group of people saying that those people were evil because they wanted their land, and then they march in and they take it. And they see that as good enough reason to abandon the Bible entirely. Because if that's in there, I don't care what else is in there. You even have some Christians who don't try to understand, certainly have a more liberal theological persuasion, but they'll say, yeah, Joshua was wrong. They wrote it down like it was scripture, but the Bible comes from man, and in this case, they were wrong. 
But, you know, it's okay. We, we just look at the stuff that we know is right. Okay, that's the first way. This was a mistake to ever consider this as part of God's design. Number two is those that look at this as inconsequential. Irrelevant, you might say. This is a similar but less outrageous view. These people admit, yes, all those passages about loving one another and then this conquest are totally irreconcilable. There's, you cannot make them work. But they don't have a problem with it like the first person might. The first person is like, it would be a mistake to ever look at the Bible. The other guy is going to say, well, look, what's the big deal? This is the human nature of the book. Just don't listen to that part. Listen to the part that we know is good. Number three, kind of in the middle. This is a, a, definitely a Christian response here, a theological response. This is a progressive view. They say, look, yes, Israel committed terrible crimes by going into the promised land. However, God had not yet revealed to them that this was wrong. Therefore, we can't hold them accountable for it. They, yes, they were not in sin for doing this. Although if we were to do this, we would be in sin. Kind of like they had not gotten to this point yet. The fourth view is what I'll call the dispensational view. This is not the same thing as dispensational eschatology, but it's a similar idea. This is a Christian response, and it's a little better. They say, well, under the old covenant, wars and conquests, that was acceptable. But we're living under the new covenant, and it's no longer okay. Jesus has changed those obligations, and all the things that were literal are now to be viewed as spiritual. So you just don't, don't worry about that. And the fifth way of looking at this, and this is the most common one today, is minimization. These are the people that want to come in and try to say the conquest was not really that bad. They say, look at the grace that God showed toward Rahab and Gibeon. And they'll say, there, there's got to be others. There has to have been more. And then there were Canaanites that were still around. They didn't even conquer all the nations. So don't think of them as wiping the slate clean because there were still enemies living there. And they say, when the Bible talks about them striking down everybody who breathed, that's just how you talk, right? We'll say, we destroyed them in that football game. Nobody thinks you actually destroyed them. That's just how you talk. And they try to say, if it, if it meant what it, what it seems to me, then yes, that would be wrong. But don't worry, it doesn't say that. Some of these views are better than others. Some of these I can roll my eyes and say, fine, we can still hang out. And there are a few that I'm like, we need to have a very serious conversation immediately. But every one of these ways of looking at this situation has a fatal flaw that causes me to reject it. They are all agreeing on one thing. It's actually a twofold assumption that every one of these views has. And here's the first point. Number one, every one of these agrees that there is an irreconcilable difference between the book of Joshua and the, and the New Testament, all the things that I just read. That you cannot reconcile the two. They are in conflict with each other. And the second assumption is, and the New Testament is right, the Old Testament is wrong. That's the assumption, that there's a conflict and this side is right. Even those that want to try to defend the passage, they defend it in such a way that accepts the premise that Joshua was wrong. They say, yes, the Bible has wrath passages and love passages. There's no way to make them work out, so we pick the loved ones. Well, hold on a minute. Let's look at these two things. First of all, I am required to reject that second premise, the idea that the New Testament is right and the Old Testament is wrong, because God does not change. And God does not lie. 
Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God knew what he was doing when he revealed the scriptures to us. It was not just human authors in your Bible. There was the Holy Spirit overseeing the entire process. And I refuse to believe that God was just lying or making it up as he went along. So we're going to reject that second part. But what about that first piece? There's an irreconcilable contradiction. I deny that too. If you can't see how two parts of the Bible work together, that doesn't mean they don't. That just means you can't understand it yet. There probably is somebody out there who does. We start to believe that our wisdom is greater than Scripture. That the way God wrote this, it doesn't make any sense, but, you know, I can still get on board, I guess. That's why people very often don't want to talk about this subject. But the thing is, the Scripture is to be our measuring stick. We talk about the canon of scripture. Canon is the Greek word for read, meaning like a ruler that you would measure things with. The idea being, this is God's truth. You measure up your life, your life and your theology and your ideas against it. If they line up, then you're right. And if they don't, then you're wrong. This is a classic example of where we come up to the canon of scripture. We don't measure up and so we assume that the measuring stick is off. You ever try to work up somebody like that? You put the level up on the, the thing and the, you know, the bubble is sideways and like, nah, that's just broken. This is supposed to be the thing that tells you if it's level or not. Yeah, well, I just, I'm, I'm looking at it right now and it looks fine to me. You ever, you ever done that? You mess with a painting so long when you finally get it straight, it doesn't look straight to you anymore? It's like, is the whole house crooked? What's the problem here? But that's what people do. We're allowing our culture to judge God's word. Now you might say, no, wait a minute. That's not my culture judging God's word. I'm letting everything that Jesus said, all those passages you read about not conquering people and turning the other cheek and, and that heaven is going to place where there's, be a place where there's no more war. I, I'm letting that judge the scriptures. No, you're not. You're picking the scriptures you like and using them to attack the scriptures you don't like. Now we're used to this being somebody else's problem. Somebody says, Bible says that God accepts you no matter what, so it doesn't matter what sins you commit. And we say, how dare you pit one scripture against another? We do the same thing if we're not careful. Yes, I know Joshua killed an awful lot of people, but don't, you don't do that. That was wrong. But I mean, it was okay because God said it was okay. I heard somebody say one time, we could never approve what they did if God hadn't specifically told them to. What's the implication? God told them to do something that we know is wrong. The assumption is that warfare, killing, violence, conquest are never justifiable. That's the assumption. That if we see war and killing and violence and conquest and one nation taking over another and cities burdened down, it must be wrong. To which I would say, where'd you get that idea from? Because you didn't get it from Scripture because that exact thing is commended and, in fact, commanded in the book of Joshua. It's interpreted by other passages, but you cannot come to the Bible and say, this piece is in conflict with this piece. No, they are harmonized, and it is your job to understand how they harmonize with one another. Like people that fancy themselves theologians that say, James and Paul, you just can't sort those two out. One says works, one says faith. Like, you seriously can't sort that out? Because it's pretty easy to sort this out. That one of them is emphasizing one thing, one's emphasizing another, and you need both. It's the same thing here. 
The Lord is talking about warfare in this context, and he's talking about love in another context, and they're both true. If you are going to strictly follow a biblical ethic, you will be compelled to approve and, in fact, celebrate the conquest, as we see in the book of Joshua. Let me give you a few arguments why we do this. How can you say something like that? It's one thing just to stand there and say, Bible, 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 which I don't have a problem doing. But let's look at this logically, philosophically, theologically here. First point is that God is omnibenevolent. That's a word that means all good. Kind of like omnipotent means all powerful. Omnibenevolent means all and only good. Richard Dawkins, you know, one of the, an atheist revival preacher, basically, from England, refused to debate William Lane Craig, a Christian, at Oxford because he says he believes the Bible and he refuses to denounce the conquest of Joshua. Therefore, he believes in genocide and I'm I'm not debating a Nazi. However, the atheist is without a leg to stand on when it comes to denouncing things like this. Let me put it to you this, this way. Atheists love facts and logic. So how about this one? You have two options. Either God told Israel to conquer Canaan or he didn't. Now, if you're an atheist, you only have one option there. God did not tell them to conquer Canaan, which means you, you as an atheist cannot say anything about God based upon this passage. All you can say is, well, the people did this. I'm not trying to defend the people. I'm trying to define, uh, defend God. I'm not trying to create a standing principle of conquest. I'm trying to defend what God did here. Now, if God told Israel to conquer Canaan, you either have two more options. Either God was right in doing that or he was wrong in doing that. And if you're going to say God was wrong, that's a nonsense statement. Because one of the characteristics of God is omnibenevolence. That God is all good. Unless you're dealing with some pagan, heathen pantheon where the gods are these mischievous little tricksters fighting with each other all the time. We're talking about a serious biblical definition of God. What right do you have to evaluate what God did? The Bible says, can the, the clay say to the potter, why are you making me this way? The word tells us that God is only good. In fact, guys, God is our definition of good. So if God said to do something, then it was good. The conquest was righteous because God told Israel to do it. That didn't make it righteous. That means it was only righteous or God wouldn't have told them to do it in the first place. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So we're not looking at standing permission to conquer another nation, but we believe that God can and does raise up nations from time to time to do exactly that. Habakkuk 1.6 says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to come and conquer your nation, Habakkuk. God is able to do that. Why? Well, this gets to our second point here. Judgment against sin. The first point is that God is good. Don't sit there and try to judge God. But we do have an insight into his motivation here. Why would God call them to do this? Primarily, it was to bring judgment against the sins of the Amorite nations. Genesis 15, 16, God was explaining to Moses, uh, Moses, uh, Abraham, is explaining to Abraham why he was not letting him uh, take over the promised land yet. He says, because they'll come back in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's Genesis 15, 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Translation, they're sinful, but they have not sinned so much to the point where I have to judge them. But by the time your descendants have spent 400 years in slavery, it will be time. 
What kind of things did the Canaanites do? Well, we're going to run across this more as we get into the book of Judges, as we get into the prophets. But idolatry, first of all, heathenism, paganism, worshiping the nature, worshiping spirits, worshiping demons, sexual immorality. It's, it's a rather disturbing thing to research what sort of things were done in the worship of the false gods of, of Canaan. All manner of sexual perversion. Human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Witchcraft. Those are the kind of things that the Canaanites did. God has the right to judge iniquity. In fact, God has an obligation by his own character to judge iniquity. And he often uses other nations to do it. Rarely does God call down brimstone and fire like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. Usually he raises up another nation to do that. And in this case, this was Israel. And if you say that's not fair, they should have been given a second chance. God gave them almost half a millennium to repent. In fact, they got 40 bonus years when Israel refused to cross the promised land. Consider, when, what, was, what was 500 years ago in our case? 1523? We're in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. They had just invented book binding. Never mind the internet. Like, they had just, like books were like new technology. We can print a bunch of them all at one time. Isn't this great? They hadn't even discovered, or people weren't really living in the new world yet. They were still wearing those big frilly collar things. <laughs> Imagine if God said, I'll give you from then until 2023 to repent. That's a long time. Well, how would they have known? God is faithful. He would have raised up prophets. He would have sent down uh, warnings and dreams. They would have known of what was happening. Israel's coming for you. For 40 years, they knew that. Why? Because they're going to take our land because the Lord their God is going to give it to them. They had their chance. Yet they persisted in their sins. And then when Israel came charging into their land, they didn't fall on their knees and repent. They saddled up and went to war. Before we judge God for judging a nation, we should consider their own transgressions. The easy way to do this is when someone says, I can't believe that God would judge a nation. You go, what about Nazi Germany? Well, I mean, Nazis, right? You got to judge those guys. Okay, that's what these guys were. Most of the time, the nations that God judges are just as wicked, although the thing is we just don't agree with God that the things he's judging are that wicked. And that's our problem. That's our foolishness and it's our deception. Not only that, Israel themselves would be judged in the same way when they did the same thing. God says, I used you to judge the Canaanites, but I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge you. There's a passage in Isaiah 37 where he's talking to Assyria. He says, I've used you, Assyria, to conquer many nations, but because you're so full of pride and sin, I'm going to turn around and conquer you too. God doesn't give special privileges even to his chosen people, as I said. He was executing judgment on the Canaanites, showing the whole world what righteousness was. This is going all the way back to the Tower of Babel and the, and the choosing of Abraham. God is, is establishing his presence on the world in a way that everybody can see. And to that end, because he's trying to show the world what righteousness was, we should talk about grace for a little bit. There is something to be said for this argument that I mentioned earlier, that God was showing mercy during the conquest. For all the destruction of the Canaanites that was going to happen, the first Canaanite they encountered got invited into the line of the Messiah. That's Rahab. The harlot, remember her? The spies hid in a brothel. We think, oh, that's, that's unfortunate that that had to happen. Yeah, well, that... that owner of that brothel became the great-great-grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah. Welcomed into the tribes of Israel in the lives of Christ. Even Gibeon, although they were tricksters, were spared in the name of the Lord. 
Had the other nations repented in sackcloth and ashes, they would have been forgiven. How can you say that? Because that is how God does it every single time. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? God goes, why are you going to persist in the thing that is going to require me as the judge of all the universe to judge you? We also know that there were survivors who, of these other nations, the Philistines and so on, who had every opportunity to join God's people and become Israelites. We often forget that that was an option. You could become circumcised, you could be baptized, was the ritual they added later, and become part of the land. Consider Ruth, Ruth 1.16. She says, wherever you go, I'll go. Your land will be my land, your people my people, and your God my God. And she also was invited into the line of Jesus Christ. I never want to minimize the harem, the ban, the devotion to destruction. But it does seem that there were some instances where we devoted them all to destruction, but then there were others that were spared, that survived, other nations. And that ought to be taken into consideration. I'm not a big fan of that, but if people want to say, well, it's clear that there were other Canaanites that survived, it's like, yes, but I, I would never want to minimize what was happening in an attempt to make it more palatable to somebody that doesn't like what God did. What this goes to show is that God operates with his whole character at all times, even in war. That God's blood doesn't get up and he does something that was atrocious. The Lord is always loving and always just. Speaking of which, the fourth thing that we need to talk about here is we need to have holistic biblical ethics. What does that mean? It means you need to use the whole Bible to create an ethical system. Not just the parts you like, not getting rid of the parts that, oh, a little unsettling. I don't know how I'd integrate that into my life, so let's just not think about it right now. Where did you get your theology of violence and warfare? I don't know if I have a theology of violence. Yeah, yeah, you do. Because this is something that God talks about. So you've either got a good theology or you've got a bad theology about it. Now, it is very clear on one hand that death and war were not part of God's original creation. That's true. God looked at the whole world and said it was very good. Death did not enter the world until sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. We are told to live peaceably with all men and to turn the other cheek. The Lord told Moses, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, etc., etc., etc. Now we hear that and we go, okay, I know what those mean. But you have to let the Bible define its own terms. When Jesus says love, what does he mean by love? You know, now it's, it's funny. We used to be, part of philosophy was defining your terms. That's like the whole first half of your book was, what do I mean when I say this? Now we say, things. what do you mean by that? And they go, it's not my job to educate you. Well, the Bible takes the time to explain itself. Ecclesiastes 3, I'm going to skip some verses in here, but verses 1 through 8. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Verse 8, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. You might think, when could there ever be a time to kill? It's in the Bible. A time for war. Don't scoff at the scripture. What does the Bible say about warfare, by the way? Psalm 144, verse 1, David wrote, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That's being metaphorical. Do you really think that's what they thought when it was written down? 
Do you really think that the king of the armies of Israel writing songs about warfare and battle was thinking about the inner struggle? Now, it can be applied that way, but that's not what it was written about. They would, you had to picture them singing this song in ranks, guys. No, we say, I don't know, but I've been told. They're singing, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That is holding up the virtue of a godly soldier in Scripture. How about Judges chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? We're going to hit this chapter in just a few weeks here. It says, these are the nations that the Lord left, meaning after the conquest was over. These are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. So God left certain nations alive in the promised land to test the coming generations. To what purpose? Verse 2 says, it was so that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had known it before. God said, I'm going to leave you some enemies in your midst so that every generation of your people will know how to fight. They'll all know what it means to saddle up and go to battle. Apparently, when God created his country, that was a priority for him. There have always been pacifists in the Christian church. Going all the way back, this was a discussion that they had even before the church was accepted in the Roman Empire. That if legionnaires got saved, well, what do I do now? Should I keep serving in the Roman army? Or should I quit? If I quit, they're going to cut off my head. I'll do it for Jesus, but do I really have to? And this is a very common position in the church today. But all I can say to you is that the Bible does not mandate that position. And I don't think you can, you can tenably hold that. You can say, well, I want to, I, I think I'm just never going to be violent or I'm never going to approve of these things. That's fine, but God does. Elise concerns nations. Countries go to war and God approves of those who defend themselves. In fact, God even raises up conquerors to judge other nations and to exalt those that serve him. That is absolutely biblical and you cannot get out from under it. The burden of proof is absolutely upon the pacifist to prove that that's what the scripture meant. What about self-defense? Do you know that the Bible approves of those who can defend themselves and especially men who can defend their families? When Jesus was talking about him going to the cross and he said to them, the disciples in verse 36, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And they said, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. They didn't quite get what he was getting at there. But he said, before I sent you out, don't take anything. Just go and trust that I'll provide for you. It was a special time. The Messiah had come. But he said, I'm about to leave. Point being, you're going to be living in what you will call normal life for a long time. So make your money. Dress well for the road. And take a sword with you. Now, that, that is said in passing, but you might ask this question. Why did, would Jesus even mention his disciples walking around on the roads armed? What's the sword for? Is it just a prop for when you're preaching? The sword of the Spirit. No, the sword is so that if you're on the road going out to preach the gospel to somewhere and bandits show up, you're able to defend yourselves. If you're a Second Amendment guy, you might really like that verse. It is implied in the way Jesus talks that there are moments and times when self-defense and self-defense violently is appropriate and good. 
Numbers 35, remember this? We talked about the cities of refuge, that if somebody killed a member of your family, they could flee to the city of refuge and they could stay there until the trial went through. But he says in Numbers 35, But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of the city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. The Lord says in those, those verses, Somebody kills your family. I get it. You want revenge. The Lord does not fault us for that. Later on, Paul teaches us the better way of Christ. As always, that's what Jesus did, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you. But it is a lesser sin as far as Scripture is concerned. Because God recognizes and honors and makes space in his law for that fatherly or sonly desire to avenge those that you love. Yes, we take Jesus' words into account. Yes, there's a New Testament ideal to follow. But I'm trying to free yourself of the thought that God automatically condemns all violence. It's simply not true. There were times in the Bible where some of God's favorites acted rather ferociously in the way that they handled people and even violently. You know these passages, but let's string them together so that we remember them. 1 Samuel 15, 33. This is when Saul failed to win the battle against Amalek. The prophet Samuel, the Nazarite from birth, Hannah's boy, said to King Agag of the Amalekites, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Apparently, part of a prophet's job occasionally was hacking people to pieces. That only happened one time. It did not. 1 Kings 18.40. We all know the story where Elijah called down fire from heaven, right? All the prophets of Baal were there. And all the people said, oh, the Lord, he is God. And then we always skipped to, and then he started praying for rain. Nah, something happened in the middle. 1 Kings 18.40. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. That means you have 400 prophets of Baal being held down by these Israelites, brought to the prophet Elijah, and throat slit, run through, cut open, and thrown into the river. The brook Kishon ran red with the blood of false prophets that day. And God was very angry? No, that was why God sent him back. How about Nehemiah 13.25? Nehemiah was in charge of building the wall of Jerusalem, setting up the temple the way it was supposed to be, keeping all of the uh, Samaritans out that were trying to infiltrate it. He comes back and he finds out all the rich people in Israel were intermarrying with the Philistines and the Amorites and all the remaining uh, people. And it says their kids couldn't even speak Hebrew. They were speaking the language of Moab, of the Philistines of Ammon. So how did Nehemiah handle this? I confronted them. Good for you. And cursed them. Okay. And beat some of them. And pulled out their hair. And made them take an oath in the name of God. Saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Is that how you would want your pastor to handle a situation like that? Well, you know... She was in sin, and so, you know, the pastor went over and, did you give her a nice talking to? No, he threw her to the ground and pulled out her hair. <laughs> he what? <laughs> well, you know, like the Bible says. Bible doesn't say that. Yes, it does, Nehemiah 13, 25, right there. Who knows their Bible now? 
I'm trying to be a little funny here, but it is a pretty serious thing. How about David? You know what happened when David declared himself king? He ruled in Judah just part of the, uh, part of the land for seven years while one of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, was sitting on the throne. But some of the members of the court of King Ishbosheth decided, you know what, David should be king after all. They assassinated Saul's son and they bring his head to David thinking David will be very, very happy with them. Now, you know what David did? He chopped off their hands and hung them from the wall. That's David. And 1 Kings 15.5 tells us David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. (laughs) These are some of God's favorite people. Am I trying to convince you to go out and be pugnacious and a brawler? As the word says, no, I'm trying to show you that if you know the Bible's peace passages so well and you hear them and you go, hmm, what do you do with these? Because they're just as much scripture as the other ones are. And if you were from a different culture, you might like these better and have a problem with the other ones. You've got to know the war passages too. The Bible takes the world as it is. It longs for the day when such things will be over. Someday we're going to have tractors that are former tanks plowing the fields. But for right now, we're living in this sinful world. Even matters like these are handled with what I'll call a strong jaw in the Bible. Matters like invasion. Things that we would call today perhaps war crimes. The Bible looks at that and says, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We cannot afford to be soft in our outlook on the world that is full of sin. You have to have a strength of character and a strength of backbone to live in a sinful world and establish God's righteousness. We cannot just be soft and fuzzy all the time and expect that that's righteous. Jesus flipped over tables (laughs) flipped over tables in the temple. I'll tell a story. One time I was preaching on that passage and I was a guest and it wasn't like a big thing. So it was okay. But I preached on that passage and Jesus made a whip. I'd been asked to talk about it. It wasn't like I was just, you know, I want to talk about that one, you know, but as you know, Jesus says he braided a whip and as Jesus beat people out of that temple. And as soon as it was over, the guy comes up and says, now just to clarify, Jesus didn't use that whip on anybody. It's your meeting pal, but what do you think he made it for then? Like, do you think it was just, why, why, don't make me use this? <laughs> now, I never will, but wouldn't that be scary if I did? Now, Jesus was flipping over tables and saying, hey, what do you think you're doing? Jesus whacks him with a whip. Get out of here. Jesus bloodied a few noses when he cleansed the temple. It says the disciples were astonished and remembered the phrase from the Old Testament that says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Why? They'd never seen him like this. It shocked them. Was Jesus in sin? Oh, come on. There's a word we use in theology called impeccable, meaning Jesus was incapable of sinning. Or actually, if I want to be technical about it, he had the capacity to sin as a man, but as God, it was certain that he would not. Jesus didn't sin. God looked at that and goes, finally, somebody had the guts to clear out my house. We cannot have a soft outlook on the world. I'm not telling you, to be some bitter person. There are some people that are going to like this message way too much. But the Bible handles things in the world with a strong jaw, and we've got to have the same outlook on life. 
If we're going to evaluate the conquest, you've got to look at all of Scripture's truth. It was warfare done at God's behest to execute judgment on the earth, and it was done with honor, and it ought to be celebrated. That's the long and short of it, that the conquest was, was terrible in the old sense of the word. You know, we think terrible now, we think immoral. The word terrible had to do with terror and fear, like shocking that something would happen. You know, that the Lord is terrible. It's not that God does bad things. He's not evil, but it's terror-inducing, awesome. It was a terrible thing, and yet it was righteous too. Why then do so many people seem to have a problem with this when it's all right there? I'm not talking about the average Christian that maybe is used to certain passages but not to others and is prepared to be taught. People that do this for a living. Why? I got, I think, a two-part answer to this. The first one is because we're biased. We live in a culture that values peace at all costs. Now, don't come talking to me now about what happens on TV. That is something entirely different. Nobody's actually dying on that TV. You see actual violence taking place, and immediately everybody rises up and panic. No, we can't do that. The thought of sending one soldier to war. People march in the street. There's no reason to ever go to war, ever. It's funny. That used to be a left-right issue. Now it's just an everybody issue. No more foreign wars. Point being, there is a cultural bias against war. We're not a scrappy, pugnacious, let's go and conquer the world kind of culture. We're a leave us alone. We got oceans on either side. Let's just stay here. Whether it was the post-World War I idealism that swept through the church, that, hey, that was the Great War, and that nobody would be stupid enough to start another one after how bad that was. Well, somebody was. His name was Adolf. He had a friend named Benito, and they were more than willing to start another one. He had the flower power in the 60s, right? Make love, not war putting the flowers and the guns. We're never going to do this. We're, we're going to, you know, peace. We're going to burn our draft cards. That sunk into the culture too, didn't it? Now you've got the postmodern anti-colonialism thing. There is no reason for any nation to ever take over another nation, least of all this one. Our culture has been overwhelmed with a hatred for war and for conflict. And because there are parts of the Bible that very much endorse that idea, we feel comfortable ignoring the rest of the Bible that would challenge those ideas. Can I just give you one little lesson here? Don't be so quick to denounce war or to despise soldiers or to, to speak hastily about big conflicts like this. Sometimes it's manipulation making it down to your way. When you re read a history and you read about movements that seemed spontaneous and it was somebody funding it or it was somebody sending it down from the top or we're going to infiltrate it from the bottom because we want people to have an opinion on things. The Bible inoculates you against that. You already know what you believe and you're not going to listen to what somebody else says. You stand alone on the B-I-B-L-E. We've got to be strong people. That's another lesson you can draw from this. Men have to be willing and able to defend their homes and defend their honor. That is the manly ideal that the Bible holds up. Who was God's favorite, guys? Old Testament, David, the warrior poet. New Testament, John the Baptist. And Jesus actually goes, if I had to get a slight edge, I'd give it to John the Baptist. The crazy wild man that lived in the desert and ate bugs and insulted people who came to hear him preach. You brood of vipers. 
Men have to be willing and able to defend their homes. Guys, it is your responsibility, men, to defend your house, defend your family, defend your daughters, and teach your sons to do the same. And if the day ever comes where they call for your nation to be defended, you ought to answer that call or be prepared to answer that call if it comes your way. It's biblical. In fact, the Bible says you're supposed to do what the governing authorities tell you to do. I don't believe in this war. You got drafted? The Bible says go. That's hard. That's what it says. And women, you need to be those that respect your sons and your husbands for doing their duty. Don't be one of those mothers or grandmothers or whatever it is. Then anytime you see your, your son showing that mini aggression, that all you want to do is just try and calm it down and just beat it out of him as fast as you can. He's going to need that someday. You ever see that movie, Remember the Titans? He says, you got anger, that's good. You're going to need it, son. You got aggression, that's even better. What is he trying to tell him? It's all about harnessing all of that and pointing it in the right direction. Now, he's talking about football. We can apply that to life. You're going to see this in your little kids. Everything's a gun when you're a little boy. I remember when I was in kindergarten, my friend Marcus, we were playing guns because I had like Lincoln logs. We made guns out of Lincoln logs. And, you know, he was, you know, pew, pew, pew. And there's no, boys, you got to stop. And I stopped because I was a good little boy. Marcus didn't stop. Marcus, I'm going pew, 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 pew. And she goes, no guns, Marcus, not even finger guns. I was five years old. I remember thinking, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> now, we were probably being a little out of sorts. That's fine. My, my two-year-old child, his, this is his, his gun right here. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. I didn't teach him that. Why is he doing that? Because there's something about it, about that conflict, that aggression, that competition, that manhood. That's an instinct that God put in there. That from your little boy is your little girl twirling around in front of the mirror. That is that, that design that God made that we claim to love and defend so much. You can't just start working on these things when they're 20 and they're questioning their gender. You've got to start when they're little. Dad, take that kid and show him how to be a man. Ladies, take your daughters and show them how to be women. Or how to, vice versa, treat the opposite sex. If we don't do that, we're going to be at the mercy of people who do. I don't want to keep going back to World War II, but it's such a classic example of the nation that wanted to fight was the one that was ready to fight when it came. And that was, of course, Germany. You go back and you read all these, and you can read the, you know, the meeting minutes now from Parliament now, and what they would constantly say in England when Churchill or somebody would bring up at Hitler's rearming, and they say, nobody wants a war, so we can sort this out. They never could even comprehend somebody that actually, that's exactly what they wanted. If we can't even comprehend that, we're going to be weak, and we cannot be like that. We'll have to learn it on the fly, and we may not have enough time. But what's the second reason? We're spoiled. First reason is that we're biased. Second reason is that we're spoiled. We have not seen war on American soil for a very long time. I suppose you could count Pearl Harbor, even though Hawaii was not a state at that point yet, but the last time we had a foreign invader on our own soil was the War of 1812. Cap the Civil War, okay, yes, but that's a little different, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's because it's us. It's all us. Last time we had people speaking a different language with a different flag marching onto our land, 1812, 200 years ago and more. We're incredibly blessed. Thank God for that. Don't get me wrong here. But you cannot, therefore, sit in judgment of those whose borders are constantly being overrun People whose villages are being terrorized by bandits and people with, with guns and cannons showing up and taking all their stuff. You can't have a gun in your house. That's, the Bible says, turn the other cheek. It's like, you, know, you live in a gated community. 
that let this person do what he's got to do. We're incredibly blessed. We have functioning courts. We have police that will answer your call. We have the luxury to detest violence with impunity. This can cause us to view life through an American filter, find some supporting Bible verses, and call that Christianity rather than the Bible itself. You can be a heretical dove just as easily as you can be a heretical hawk. You know that, don't you? We look at our own history, and you know, it's kind of taken for granted after a lot of pushing from lots of different directions that America probably should never have existed in the first place. You know, the Indians were here and, you know, we stole their land and now this, we're just so ashamed of every, every victory that we've ever won. Well, if I'm going to look at that situation through my biblical filter, what do I see? I see Christians fleeing to a new land to start out. That the inhabitants are mostly wiped out, not through warfare, but through plagues. Through which people didn't have any control of. Who's in charge of that? It's our Lord. That God raising up another nation to come in and take their place. How do you know God did it? The Bible says no nation rises unless God has done it. And disaster does not come to a city unless the Lord has done it. Over hundreds of years, these people that were worshiping idols and creeping things and the stars of the heavens were defeated. While countless numbers of them who are willing to become part of the, the faith and join God's people are, are living among us now. Only God raises up nations. And we're going to denounce any kind of atrocity that we see. But we can look at this through this lens and say, this should, should never have happened. And now you start walking around with your head down on something that you shouldn't even feel condemned about. We can even talk about the Crusades if we had another hour to talk about this. There's no reason to ever go to war in the name of Jesus. Really? Are we sure about that? I might not be sure about that. What would you think if the entire world, slowly Rome, had slowly been Christianized, and all of a sudden, 600 years later, out of nowhere, comes this false religion, burning churches, tearing down steeples, and establishing mosques, worshiping the star and the moon, and praying to a false god who has had no son. And then they take over Jerusalem. How do you think the Christians of the world might respond? I'm not even stepping here truly to defend this one way or another. What am I saying is we have immediate knee-jerk responses to these things. When the scripture gives us things that are a little more complicated to think about. Righteous war is possible. How do I know? Because Revelation 19.11 says in the end that Jesus is going to do exactly that. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. What do we learn from all this? Well, you might need a bit of unlearning first to receive all of it. If all you can take away from this tonight is, okay, don't, don't immediately assume that I know what the Bible says about something. How about this? Face your own days that you live in from a disposition of love, but make sure you have a reserve of strength to call upon in case you need it. Be a good citizen, even a good soldier if the day comes, and trust that God will honor you as you do your duty. We are so unfair to our men who come back from war and we're almost ashamed to look them in the eye over what they've done. And they, they of all people, are the ones that need our love and need our help. The churches at least need to be a place where we say, you did your duty and God honors you for that. Is God gonna hold the foot soldier responsible for what the general sent him to do? Not according to scripture. Restore your own patriotism, how about that one? The Bible tells us to love our country, to desire the success of our country, to be proud of our heritage, to look back on what's sinful and say, let's not do that again, but to take a stand and say, this is what the Lord has done. And it is glorious in our eyes. 
And most of all, do not sit in judgment of God's actions as if you are more loving than he is. Isn't that what it amounts to? If I was God, I would never have told him to do that. Why? Because it's just not, it's not loving. God is love. If you think that you would do it differently than God, you are missing something. Remember, guys, God is a God of love, but Exodus 15.3 says he is also a God of war. Violence can be virtuous. Conquest can be righteous. You've got to keep a lid on that unless your cultural opinions begin to drift over into more than just your theology of warfare. This is how we redeem a nation, is by taking a stand on what a nation's strength is supposed to look like under the lordship of Jesus Christ and how we learn to fight alongside our Redeemer who fights for us.